Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Today we observe the transfiguration of our Lord. It is, in a sense, the culmination of Epiphany, for throughout the Epiphany season, Jesus is being manifested as God who has come in human flesh. Only the God-man Jesus can be transfigured as his face shines like the sun, his clothes become white as light, and Moses and Elijah appear to speak to him of his upcoming exodus, that he would be crucified at Golgotha. The light that by which he is transfigured is not borrowed light. The light by which Moses' face shone was borrowed light for being in the presence of God Almighty. And here Jesus is revealing himself to be God as he is transfigured. It would have been an amazing sight to behold. And Jesus permitted three eyewitnesses to behold his glory on this Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John were present. They would be allowed to tell others of what they had seen after Jesus rose from the dead. Yet, despite them seeing the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ in his transfiguration, the glory of Christ would be seen by even more eyewitnesses at a later day, not much further into the future, when Jesus is nailed to the cross. There he is not transfigured, but his glory is being made manifest because he is serving as the Lamb of God who has come to take away the world's sin as he pronounces forgiveness upon his people. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And when he announces his victory, declaring, it is finished. As Jesus is transfigured here on the mountain, suddenly the voice of God the Father speaks, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so we have, as Peter writes, the sure prophetic word confirmed, which we do well to pay attention to as a light. In today's epistle, Peter reflects on that day of transfiguration, pointing out that he heard for himself the very voice of God the Father from heaven when they were with Jesus on that mountain. I suppose that St. Peter writes in our epistle, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, because it may seem like the transfiguration of our Lord is but a cleverly devised myth. After all, no human being has the ability to do what Jesus did in his transfiguration. And so some might dismiss his eyewitness account. They may dismiss writings of scripture. And so he says, these are not cunningly devised myths. We are truly eyewitnesses. 
Over the last several centuries, there have been many researchers who have attempted to identify what they figure is the real Jesus, the man, a mere man they try to find. They try to dig up what they can to determine who was that man who lived in Galilee apart from all the superstitions that people would later add about him, of him performing miracles or being transfigured. We call these so-called researchers or theologians higher critics, for they interpret, for as they attempt to interpret the scriptures, and many today don't even bother with trying to deal with the scriptures, they try to determine the biblical author's true intents for their writing. This may seem to some degree laudable, but what it really does is it opens the door to let any person's private interpretations of Scripture become accepted as a scholarly and valid viewpoint. So if someone wants to claim that the creation account was but a myth written by Moses because Moses had to accommodate the superstitions of a primitive culture, then those espousing higher criticism will say, Well, that sounds like a wonderful and good and viable option. They react favorably, thinking that they now have some wise scholarship for the world to accept, even as they are denying what the Bible teaches, including what Jesus himself teaches on these matters. Unlike the higher critics, Peter's account matches the various gospel writers. The biblical authors are inspired by God, the Holy Spirit. They teach. They they teach us to listen to Jesus as they direct our hearts and minds toward him, for he is alone, serves as our Savior. And in our epistle, St. Peter teaches that Scripture is not written from man's own private interpretation but instead it is written as men are carried along. They are inspired by God, the Holy Spirit. Therefore, what is written in the scriptures could only be the truth of God's word. There is no room for higher criticism in legitimate biblical interpretation. And knowing that the Bible is the truth is comforting. Because we have a standard then to judge that which is true and not true, that which is right and that which is wrong. We are then freed from the oppressive trends of the day. We are also freed from the various opinions of mankind. And we are even freed from the feelings of our own hearts, which are often misled by the circumstances around us. Just remember how Eve had listened to the voices outside of God's word as she heard something that contradicted the word that she had been taught, how when she used her own eyes, her own senses to determine that that fruit of the tree looked good, something to be desired. And and now she also, having heard this lie from the devil, she then desires to know something that God did not teach. She was, in a sense, the first higher critic. 
And in doing so, her act, along with Adam's, resulted in, in the entire world being corrupted by sin. From the lesson of Adam and Eve alone, we can recognize that God reveals his truth through his word and that we are not to trust those who say, did God really say, nor are we to trust those senses that God has given to us should those senses be trying to teach us something that contradicts the scriptures. You see, God does not promise to reveal to us additional divine truths apart from the Bible. And most things revealed apart from Scripture is of a different spirit, a revelation of the devil. Just think for a moment what it would be like if God promised to reveal things to us apart from the Bible. If, if that were the case, one person would say this and another person would say the exact opposite. And how would we then know which one has a word sent from God when they are contradicting themselves? God, of course, is not a God of disorder, but of order. Satan is the one who wants to see chaos. And that is certainly what would ensue should God have left it open for us to determine that there are going to be new biblical teachings apart from the sacred scriptures. And Satan would then be having a heyday. But even though we know truth revealed in scripture, Satan, the master of lies, continues to have a heyday. For many Christians do not read their Bibles to know what is in it. And many simply do not want to believe what is written in the Bible even though they know and have been taught that God the Holy Spirit, as we heard in our epistle lesson, inspired men to write what they wrote and that they did not write any cleverly devised myths. In our day, there are many cleverly devised myths floating around that stand in opposition to the word of God. The Bible says male and female, he created them, and now you are being taught by society that you must believe in gender fluidity. The Bible speaks against divorce, and since the 1970s, our land has had no-fault divorce laws. The Bible teaches that marriage is the union of one man and one wo woman, and now the world around you is trying to get you to believe that marriage can be between any two or more consenting individuals. The Bible teaches that God creates life in the mother's womb. And now, many say unborn babies are not human lives and that they can be destroyed because they are somehow unwanted. The Bible teaches that lust is breaking the sixth commandment. And today, many would have you believe that the only way to enter into marriage is first to engage in cohabitation, and many do not think anything of using pornography. The Bible teaches that the universe is not very old, but many in the world would have you believe that it is billions of years old. The Bible teaches the only way to salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone, for he alone took on human sin. He alone died in our place. 
He alone paid for the sins of the world, and yet the world around you will say that is too exclusive of a claim, it is too narrow-minded, and that we ought to believe that the way to an afterlife, if there is one, is by any route that any person chooses, as long as they are sincere in what they believe. There's no question that many have bought into the various cleverly devised myths out there. Many who consider themselves Christian, even Lutheran, hold to the many myths espoused by our modern times. We think we're somehow enlightened, but we're not when we reject the truth of Scripture and when we go after the lies around us. We need to, in order to counteract the temptation to go with the world, to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the sacred scriptures, doing so on a daily basis in our homes. We must continually speak the truth to our children so that they don't blindly accept the myths of this world, for in the world they are constantly being taught these lies. We must also be on guard against the many theologians out there who, who hold to things that are contrary to the word of God. It's stunning at how many who profess to be Christian hold to false belief and teach false doctrine. You can find a Christian church out there, or at least one that claims to be a Christian, that will teach absolutely anything that you want to believe if you look hard enough for that church. But that doesn't make them truthful nor does it make their teachings Christian or their teachings legitimate. We would like to think that because Martin Luther recovered the Bible's truths at the Reformation, that Lutherans have held to pure doctrine ever since. But history has revealed that simply is not the case. The Formula of Concord was written as a very important document in our Lutheran confessions. It is something that our church has said we believe that it is true and it matches what the scriptures teach. All pastors in the Missouri Synod have subscribed unconditionally to this document. But why was it written? It was written because Lutherans did not agree with one another over various issues. And so this was written in order to clarify and to state definitively on the various issues contained in the Formula of Concord, what we truly believe, teach, and confess. Beginning in the 1700s, rationalism began to raise its ugly head in Lutheran churches in Germany, and it really took hold in the early 1800s to the point that many churches denied the miracles that are recorded in the Bible, Many Lutheran churches denied the efficacy of the sacraments, saying that baptism is just water and the Lord's Supper is just bread and wine because it did not make sense that God would come through baptism, through the word and the water in baptism to adopt people into his family. It did not make sense that Jesus could unite himself to the bread and to the wine. And so... There were many that refused to believe the scripture's clear teachings on this. 200 years ago, in what is for many of us our fatherland, 
because of transfigurate, because of this, uh, this false teaching known as rationalism had permeated so many churches in that land, many began to view Jesus as irrelevant for their modern era. And many preachers began to teach modern theological advances from the pulpit instead of preaching Christ. For example, in some churches, once they had learned about how good crop rotation is 200 years ago, that's what they were preached to about instead of Jesus. Even in our beloved Missouri Synod, things have not been perfect. The darkest times in our synod perhaps occurred 50 years ago when most of the St. Louis Seminary faculty denied the miracles that are found in the Bible. This began slowly in the 1950s. And by September of 1972, so we're talking about just over 50 years ago, a fact-finding committee commissioned by the synod president proved that a majority of the St. Louis Seminary faculty denied the authority of Scripture. The Seminary Board of Control then suspended the seminary president in January of 1974, 49 years ago, which led to the walkout in February of 1974 and the formation of Seminex, which is a shortened form of seminary in exile. Thankfully, the seminary was largely restored to its faithfulness on Scripture, but divisions have continued to plague our church body ever since with many disagreements in doctrine and in practice. And many higher critics were even allowed to stay in our synod preaching their lies throughout their ministry. What would our synod be like today, though, had the majority of our synod just said, well, if that's what the seminaries are teaching, then that's what we must accept. What would our church body be like had people not contended for the faith or stood up for that which is right? What would our church body be like if they would have said, you know, the majority of Christians in America are teaching these things, so why don't we just follow them a lot right along in with their higher criticism? Well, those who left our synod in support of Seminex are now part of the ELCA. And I suppose if everyone went along with what they are and what they were going for, our entire church body, which would be part of the ELCA, which teaches higher criticism through its version of the Lutheran study, their version of the Lutheran study Bible. And they even teach higher criticism to their children in their Sunday school materials. The Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the ELCA, questions many biblical teachings like what is marriage, what took place at creation, does hell even exist, and is salvation really only found through Jesus alone? Instead of listening to these cleverly devised myths, let us hold to the sure prophetic word of God. It is written in Jude 3, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We cannot put our passive approval on all the ways in which the church's doctrine is being attacked. Instead, we must contend for the truth. Above all, we must contend for the reality that Jesus came into the world to bear our sins in his body, 
that he alone went to the cross to pay for every last sin that the world has committed, every last sin that every sinner has committed, and that he sets us free from our sin, for he has victoriously risen from the grave, and through him our eternal salvation is secured. These truths were spoken of at the transfiguration, and Jesus himself told the disciples of his own crucifixion and resurrection. His word was proven to be sure and true as he was nailed to the cross and as he rose triumphantly from the grave. And God's word continues to be nothing but the truth, written for our learning, revealed to us for our salvation. This word gives us comfort that despite our sin, we are reconciled to God our Father in heaven and that salvation now awaits us, that God has truly adopted us as his children and that we belong to him and that just as the Father was well pleased with Christ, so also the Father is well pleased with us, for our sins are taken away by Christ, and we are clothed in the very righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. These blessings are ours. They are sure and they are certain, and they belong to us by grace through faith. Amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.